determining factor in my decision to apply for a White House fellowship in his administration. The fellows program was proposed by Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare John Gardner and established by President Johnson in 1964. The idea was to select a few young men and women in the early stages of promising careers and bring them to Washington. Each would be assigned either to the White House staff or to a cabinet member for a year of concentrated study and high-level government experience. They would return to their jobs and their communities with an enhanced understanding of, and possibly an increased desire someday to serve in, the federal government. Each year's class of fellows is chosen by a national selection process, which typically begins with a thousand applicants. After national, regional, and local interview panels winnow the numbers, some 30 finalists spend a weekend being grilled and evaluated by the members of the presidentially appointed Commission on White House Fellowships. In the end, an average of 15 is selected. I was among those chosen for the class of 1969 to 1970. Not yet 25 years old, I was among the youngest ever selected for the program, before or since. I asked to be assigned to the Treasury Department, where I had the privilege of working with Undersecretary Paul A. Volcker. At the end of the fellowship year, I was invited to join John Ehrlichman's domestic council staff and made the short move from the Treasury Building on the west side of the White House to the old Executive Office Building on the east side. In both places, the grandeur of my surroundings, the high vaulted ceilings, the heavy carved doors, the patterned parquet floors, reflected the excellence of 19th century craftsmanship rather than my entry-level position on the power grid. It was very apparent that White House Chief of Staff H.R. Bob Haldeman ran a very tight ship. There were certain expectations of all the young professionals, especially those in policy-making positions on Ehrlichman's domestic council staff, and they were made quite clear from the outset. Nixon didn't like face-to-face -face discussions of policy issues with anyone except his three direct reports, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Henry Kissinger. With these three alone, he frequently thought out loud in wide-ranging discussions that included a great deal of venting and anger and frustration, much to his later disgrace when the White House tapes became known and were made public. Haldeman was the doorkeeper who enforced the requirement that all issues reach the president's desk in writing, and via one-page cover memos on top of however much backup material was considered necessary. Very few staff members could draft papers to Nixon's satisfaction. Slowly at first, I became the drafter of choice for papers on many domestic issues. In retrospect, I don't think that my success was because I wrote like a lawyer, since a good many of us were lawyers. It had to do with a shared experience at Whittier. More than 30 years apart, both Nixon and I had taken Dr. Albert Upton's semantics course. Upton, a demanding and charismatic teacher, explored the ambiguity of words and stressed the importance of the proper use of language as the adjunct of logical thought. I think that Nixon, however unconsciously, recognized and appreciated the Uptonian influence on my writing. In reviewing my files from those days, I discovered that in five years on the domestic council staff, I prepared almost a thousand memos analyzing myriad domestic issues involving the Departments of Justice, Treasury, State, and Defense. Only a hundred or so were directly addressed to the President. 
but a lot of my other work was included in discussions or papers that did reach him. I was a member of Richard Nixon's staff for over five of the six years he was president. Ultimately, I became associate director of the Domestic Council. I knew all of the White House people who became involved with Watergate. I had worked with most of them. I was friends with many of them. I remember some with particular clarity. For example, I had a meeting with G. Gordon Liddy when he came back, as I learned much later, from reconnoitering the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist for the break-in he conducted a week later. I asked him why his hand was heavily bandaged. He said it was because while trying to light his pipe, he had become distracted by a pretty girl and inadvertently set the book of matches on fire. It turned out he had really burned his hand by placing it over a candle in order to demonstrate to his fellow burglars how much pain he could endure. Workdays.